So um, this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, about um, David. Complete coincidence um, that the book of the month in the bookshop is rooted, which is taking lessons from the life of David. Oh, it's there. Part of it's there. The other part of it's somewhere else. There we go. Um, so talking about the life of um, David, and there's kind of several points in David's life where David is an underdog. Okay. Now, we all love a good underdog story. Okay. And if you kind of look back, especially in kind of sporting stories, you look at these amazing stories uh, of underdogs about people coming back. You know, you get boxers who look like they're completely out on their feet and then they manage to fight through and kind of land that one uh, knockout punch. Um, you get, there was an amazing story a few years ago uh, in the Ryder Cup. Anybody watch the Ryder Cup? I don't tend to watch golf. But I watched the Ryder Cup. It's one of those things that kind of like you, you think you need to watch. Like everybody thinks they need to watch the, the boat race. Nobody has any interest whatsoever apart from Ruth, okay, in rowing and stuff like that for the whole year. And then we, we need to watch the boat race. Or we do that thing where you, oh, I can't believe I missed the boat race today. And like when I was growing up, like before the age of phones where you could get your result and everything, that was one of those events that if you went shopping in Dudley, um, outside one of the TV shops or something, you'd find all the men who had been dragged shopping by their wives gathered around like the front window watching like the boat race or something like that. Or like... As all the football results were coming in, you'd see all the guys like watching them come in on the video printer thing that used to be on um, on BBC. Where am I going? Um, underdog stories. So there's these amazing underdog stories. This one where like um, Europe came back against America in the Ryder Cup. That was a, a, like a fantastic day. It happened over a day of play, and everybody thought they were completely out, uh, and they they just came through. But then last year. Okay, we had kind of like the underdog story of all underdog stories with Leicester City winning the Premier League. Okay, at the time, the bookmakers thought it was more likely at 500 to 1 that the Leicester striker, Jamie Vardy, would be installed as the new James Bond. Okay? Also at 500 to 1 in the American election was Kim Kardashian to be president. Okay? Leicester City were not 500 to 1 to win the Premier League. Leicester City were 5,000 to 1 to win the Premier League. Some people put money on Leicester to win the Premier League. And um, if any of you did... Get your tithe in. No, um, no but people put money and they made loads of money because it was this completely, like, it couldn't happen. If you wrote a film script about it and you made, there have been several terrible uh, movies based on football, okay? But if you were to make a football movie about Leicester, people would think it was the most far-fetched thing they had ever seen, okay? They would think, no way could this happen? You see, you expect kind of cup competitions and one-off day sporting events to sometimes go to the underdog, but this is the course of a season. There's got to be upset after upset after upset for these underdogs to come through. But I think kind of by the end of the season, we all of us almost became Leicester City fans. And those of us who weren't like, you know, Tottenham fans uh, who wanted them to win the league. Or just wanted Leicester to win, just because we thought, you know, we might as well come in 
Leicester need to win this. This is a great story. We need to see it finished off. Even on the kind of when they played their last game of the season uh, at Old Trafford, the Man United fans were singing Leicester songs at the end of the game. Everybody gets behind an underdog. And I sometimes think, and I feel, well, I think I know that as the church, in culture, we are definitely seen as the underdog. We are definitely seen as a group of people that have no chance of winning. And when you look in the mainstream press, they talk about how the church will be dead within like 50 years. I shared a horrifying statistic about, that's come out of research from the Methodist church that they reckon that, I think it's in 50 years' time, they reckon they will close their last church at the current rate of decline. That's not the picture across the whole church, but we're still seen as underdogs. A guy called Malcolm Gladwell, he's an English-born um, Canadian author uh, and journalist. He did some research into underdogs, and he was looking at wars that have happened around the world that are recorded in history. And he was looking at wars where there was a mismatch in the size of the countries, in the size of the armies, in maybe the technical um, capacity to fight a war. And he found, oh, he found out that the underdog, the smaller side in the war, won on one out of three occasions. Now, I think that's pretty impressive. I think we'd go to say, like, it's going to be like 95% always the bigger force. It's going to be the bigger country, the better armed country. But he found in his research that a third of those wars were won by the weaker side. And then he started looking a little bit more. And when he saw some results, if the underdog fought in a way that was unconventional, that was different... It went up to the fact that the underdog came through 60% of the time. So when they went down to kind of guerrilla tactics and fought in a way that was different to what was expected, 60% of the time they came out on top. So what's this got to do with David? Well, David was an underdog in so many situations. He um, was chosen and anointed to be the king, the future king of Israel. But he wasn't even invited to the selection process in the first place. He was the youngest of his brothers. He was out in the fields looking after the sheep. And, uh, and his father presented all his older brothers for, for selection. And they kind of went through and it was like, it's not him. It's not him. It's not him. Is there anybody else? And it's like, yeah, oh yeah, there's, there's David. You know, there's little young David, but he's just out looking after the, the sheep. And the prophet said, go and fetch him. And he came and he anointed him. So he was chosen and anointed as an underdog. Someone who wasn't expected to be the one that was going to be chosen. He goes on and he, we follow David's life in the Bible and he ends up being a, a harp player. So he, was a, he was skilled at fighting off animals, looking after the sheep uh, for his family business. He was also skilled uh, in music and uh, the king at the time, Saul, went through a, a problem where um, he was kind of really stressed and he would find himself in, in terrible, uh, depressed situations. So they fetched out someone to play soothing music. David was the guy. He came out and he played for the king and he, and he played and he soothed his mood. 
but he was kind of this background guy in the whole court uh, of Israel. Then the, the story that we probably know David best for is the, the, the account of David fighting the giant Goliath. And we, we, we probably know that story that he went out and he took a sling and he, he didn't wear the king's armor because it was weighing him down. And he took a sling and he took a shot at Goliath and he took him down and then he took Goliath's sword and lopped his head off. You see, David was the underdog. And in that situation, what Goliath was probably expecting and what probably everybody watching was expecting was somebody to come out and fight Goliath on Goliath's terms. Goliath was this massive brute of a man. He was huge. He could take on loads of people at one time. He looked invincible. And if David had tried to go toe-to-toe with Goliath, he would have got his head kicked in or chopped off, as the case went with Goliath. But he didn't. David decided he was going to fight differently. He wasn't going to fight on Goliath's terms. He wasn't going to fight on the king's terms and wear the king's armor and, and take a sword. Now, he was going to fight the way he knew how to fight. He was going to fight the way he'd got best advantage to fight. And if any of you have ever played those um, computer games or games that you get on your phone, um, you know that ranged units okay, that can fire something over a distance at someone without getting hit by a sword themselves are good in that situation. In this situation, David was this ranged unit. He took a shot from a distance. Goliath couldn't touch him. Goliath had got his sword and his spear that was used for close quarters combat. Before Goliath could even get in a blow, David was on the attack. He was fighting in a way that was unconventional, that was on his own terms, not on Goliath's. And then... Saul, who's, you know, had David playing the harp for him to, to, to look after him and, and soothe him. He doesn't even really recognize David, and he asks who David is. And I imagine he's not the only person in Israel who's asking who David is, because all of a sudden there's this hero. There's this kid that's come out of nowhere, and he's took on this famous giant, this guy that everyone thought was, you know, completely undefeatable. And they start to sing songs about David. And they still love their king, Saul, but, but one of the songs the Bible tells us they were singing when uh, the lyrics to it went that um, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Saul and I was hearing that song, I'd be a little bit kind of like, hey, you, you're kind of singing that I've done this and then you telling me this kid's much better than me. This kid's stronger than me. And as Saul's depressed and he's going through, he begins to just be really envious of this young man, David. And he starts to fear him. And their relationship kind of breaks down. David's around and he's, he's really good friends with Jonathan, Saul's son. Um, but, but Saul, the king, he... You know, he fears David and Jonathan steps in and he, and, he, and he tries to bring about a peace between the two for a while. But then that eventually um, kind of falls away. And Saul's jealousy means that he sends David away and he exiles David from the kingdom. He's scared that David's going to take his throne. 
He's terrified about what is going to happen. And I want to pick up a little story then. Uh, it's in 1 Chronicles. And if you've got your Bible with you, if you've got an app on your phone, it's 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verses 1 to 22. I think we've got it for the screen, Rich. I think I put that one in. You might have to play catch up on the rest of them. It was just on the Bible app at the top. 1 Chronicles 12, um, 1 to 22. I'll start reading if we catch up. There we go. We'll catch up. Right. These were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was banished from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones right-handed or left-handed. They were relatives of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Ahiza, their chief, and Joash, the sons of Shema, the Jeziel, and Pelet, the sons of Asmaveth, Berakah, Jehu, the Anathathite, and Ishmael, the Gibeonite, a mighty warrior among the 30, who was leader of the 30, Jeremiah, Jehaziel, Johanan, Josabad, the Gederathites, Elizai, Jeremoth, Beliah, Shemariah, and Shephatiah, the Haraphites. Why they're not called Bob, Frank, and Bill, and they're not from... Broiler Hill, I don't know. Anyway, but it would be a lot easier for me to read. Right. Uh, Elkanah, Ishiah, Azarel, Joesa, and Jashabim, the Korahites, and Joela, and Zebediah, the sons of Jeraham from Gedor. Some Gedites defected to David at his stronghold in the wilderness. They were brave warriors, ready for battle and able to handle the shield and spear. Their faces were the faces of lions, and they were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. Ezer was the chief, Obadiah the second in command, Eliab the third, Mishmana the fourth, Jeremiah the fifth, Atai the sixth, Eliel the seventh, Jehanan the eighth, Elzabad the ninth, Jeremiah the tenth, and Machbali the eleventh. These Gadites were army commanders. The least was a match for a hundred and the greatest for a thousand. It was they who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks. They put to flight everyone living in the valleys to the east and to the west. Other Benjamites and some men from Judah also came to David in his stronghold. David went out to meet them and said, if you've come to me in peace to help me, I'm ready for you to join me. But if you've come to betray me to my enemies where my hands are free from violence, may the God of our ancestors see it and judge you. Then the spirit came on Amasai, chief of the 30, and he said, we are yours, David. We are with you, son of Jesse. Success, success to you and success to those who help you for your God will help you. So David received them and made them leaders of his raiding bands. Some of the tribe of Manasseh uh, defected to David when he met with the Philistines to fight against Saul. He and his men did not help the Philistines because after consultation, their rulers sent him away. They said it will cost us our heads if he deserts to his master Saul. When David went to Ziklag, these were the men of Manasseh who defected to him, Adna, Jozebad, Jediel, Michael, I can do that one, Jozebad, Elihu, and Zilathai, Leaders of units of a thousand in Manasseh. They helped David against raiding bands, for all of them were brave warriors. And they were commanders in his army. Day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army, like the army of God. I was reading this the other day, and, and David's in a, in, a, in a place where he needs help. And people start coming to him. And this man's chosen, and this man's brave. And all across his life, he messes up all the time, but he tries to do what God wants him to do, and it draws people to him. 
And I was reading this the other day. I carry around um, this Bible with me. It's gaffer taped together. It's a Soul Survivors uh, NIV Bible. In one year, there's, there's kind of bits of the cover missing. And uh, it's pretty tatty. And it, you know, the gaffer tape was because it fell apart. Right? But it sits in my bag. And I use it not um, in the way it was intended to be used, which is to go through the whole Bible in a year. I use it as a Bible with my bookmark in that sits in my bag. And whenever I get a chance to read it, I whip it out. And I work through and I, and I read some more, and it gives me a, an Old Testament reading, and a New Testament reading, and something from uh, Psalms or Proverbs at the end of it. But I was reading this, um, and I was in this coffee shop uh, over in the Jewelry Quarter in Birmingham called Urban, by the way, that if you go there, they do amazing coffee and sourdough toast. Okay, but that's just a plug. I have no interest in them other than that. Um, and I was sitting there and I was reading through this stuff and, and a lot of these parts of the Bible in Chronicles and stuff, you feel like you're just reading lists. You feel a little bit like you're reading out a class register and I'm kind of sat there and I'm saying, God, if there's something that you want to tell me through this list of people, if there's something you want to tell me, will you just show me what it is? And I carried on reading, and uh, the next bit, um, Richard, just carrying on from, uh, from there, 1 Chronicles 12, um, 23. And it started off like this, and I thought, oh God, I've asked you to help me. And then it says, these are the numbers of men armed for battle who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him, as the Lord had said. And I'm thinking, here we go again. I've got a list. And this time, not only is it a list of names, but this time it is a list of numbers. And God, I'm thinking, I've got to read this. And I really want to read through this whole uh, Bible cover to cover to know that I've covered absolutely everything that you've got to say to me. But God, do I have to read these lists? Can I not just skip the lists? And then I thought, I'll carry on. I'll carry on. So it said, from Judah, carrying shield and spear. It's a little bit like a kind of like announcer at a boxing match or a wrestling match or MMA or something like that. And you can kind of imagine somebody sitting there going, from Judah, carrying shield and spear, 6,800 armed for battle. But it, it's not like that. Um, Okay, so you've got from Judah, you've got this 6,800 armed for battle from Simeon, warriors ready for battle, 7,100. And I was re as I was reading it, I, I kind of started to think that actually there's some things here that I can actually take from this list. And it's talking about all these people that are called to David, who are called to the underdog, in the same way that we're called to God's underdog, the church, to fight against the giants of society and, uh, and, and kind of culture as it is. So what did David need? What did God send to David? First thing I, I kind of underlined in my Bible was that he sent warriors ready for battle. Okay, some of us this morning at church are like warriors ready for battle. We feel like we're ready for the fight. We feel like we're absolutely there. We're absolutely there and we can get on with the fight. It's not all of us, but some of you this morning, you're like that. Some of you, God's called you and you know what God's saying to you and you know you've got a job to do and you are 
brimming with energy, ready to go. It's kind of like, point me to the enemy, and I'll go. I'm ready for battle. It goes on. And in verse 28, it says that they'd, they'd sent 3,700 men and Zadok, a brave young warrior. This morning, I don't know if you feel like a brave young warrior. Okay, I, this guy must have been something special. Okay, he must have been something special to get a mention in amongst all those thousands. And sometimes God is calling individuals to an individual part of a role they have to play in the fight that he's got for us. Maybe this morning God's calling you as a brave young warrior, an individual who's going to do something amazing. Verse 29, it says, From Benjamin, Saul's tribe, 3,000, most of whom had remained loyal to Saul's house until then. Do you know what? Sometimes we're like that. And there's parts of the church that we're like that. That actually we thought we had a certain place in the world. And we thought we were loyal to a certain way of living and a certain way of life and certain philosophies and political uh, and kind of social beliefs. And then we kind of get turned around and actually realize that, that we, we're going to, we need to go towards where God wants us to go. Some of us this morning are like that. We're like people who've been loyal to someone else. And now we've turned around. And we're saying, God, I'm going to fight for you. I want to be on your side in the fight. In verse 30, it talks about people coming from Ephraim. Brave warriors. Famous in their own clans. Some of you are famous in your own clans. Okay, And by that... I mean that you've got influence in the places that you go into. You've got influence in your families. You've got influence in your workplace. You've got influence uh, in, in college, university, all those kind of things. You have influence. Okay, you're famous in your own clan. And if you say something, people will listen to you. And you might not think that about yourself. But when you speak... People are going to listen. So you're able to influence people for the kingdom of God because you're famous in your own clan. Verse 31 says, From half the tribe of Manasseh, designated by name to come and make David king, 18,000. These guys are chosen. They're picked out from a list of names. And I want to tell you and encourage you this morning that you are chosen. The Bible says that we're chosen. We're a royal priesthood. We're there to be people who intercede uh, between uh, non-believers and between God, and we bring them closer to him. You are chosen, just like those guys from the tribe of Manasseh. Verse 32, from Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. This morning, are you a person that understands the times, understands culture, and know what the church should do? Because do you know what? We, we need you as part of the church. Okay, we need you to be those people who understand culture 
Okay, there's lots of work that goes into understanding what culture is. And those of you who got me on Facebook, you might have seen something that I shared the other day about generations. And you've probably heard about the the, the baby boomer generation uh, after the war. And then you've got Generation X and you've got the millennials. Okay, and then we're kind of now going into a, a new generation the sociologists are talking about. But they talked about this little micro-generation. And if you are uh, as old as me, and you uh, were born um, during the time of the original Star Wars trilogy, okay, starting in 1977, okay, uh, and going through till 1982, you are now called, whether you like it or not, uh, a zenial or exennial, depending on who pronounces it. Okay, and that's this little micro-generation that was born in a world that was analog and grew up in a world that was digital. And we had this massive change in like technology and stuff during the time uh, we were growing up. Uh, and sociologists have identified this specific group of people. We need to be a church that understands groups of people that understands how people think. We need to be a church that can reach the baby boomers, Generation X, Xennials, and we can reach uh, the millennials, and then whichever name they give to the generation that's coming afterwards, which at the moment is Generation Y, I think. Right? We need to know the times. We need to know what the church should do. All these roles, they come together. Verse 33, Zebulun, they again, they send experienced soldiers prepared for battle. Okay, the other guys were, were trained. These guys are experienced. They've been in the fight. They know what it takes to fight. And the very fact that they're there and experienced soldiers means they know what it takes to survive in the tough times. We need to be survivors. As a church, we need to go through stuff that's tough and we need to come out the other side and focus back on God and the mission and the fight that he's got for us. From Naphtali, he sends a thousand officers. Okay? People who are going to be in command. People who are going to look after everybody else. Verse 35 from Dan, he sends people again ready for battle. Um, 36 from Asher, experienced soldiers again prepared for battle. Okay? Then he gets these guys in verse 37 from the east of the Jordan, from Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh armed with every type of weapon. Okay, now I don't know what every type of weapon we're talking about here. I'm pretty sure, you know, that there was nothing um, like advanced. You know, we look at weapons today, but I imagine they were coming with every type of weapon, anything they could lay their hands on. Okay, okay, sticks that they used for looking after the cattle. Okay, through to swords, bows, slings, basically anything they could use to fight, they'd got it. And if there was a certain weapon needed, these guys were going to be the guys who would have hold of it. We need to use everything that we have. Every little skill, every little bit of understanding, every technology, everything that we can use to fight the fight for God, to be his church. Verse 38, all these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over all of Israel. 
Do you know what? There's a little plaque up there. Uh, a little kind of certificate from the Dudley Volunteer Awards 2016. Okay, and it's presented to the youth team here at PHCC um, for the work that's done in volunteering. Okay. This church has run for many, many years on people who will volunteer, on people who will stick their hand up and see a job that needs doing and get in and do it. Uh, kind of recently, I've started getting paid one day a week minimum wage. Okay, all right? For five or six years, I'd take no wage whatsoever in church because I knew I needed to volunteer. Now, I know not everybody is going to be put in a position that they can do that. Okay, And although it wasn't easy, I know that God provided for me and Ruth in that time when I wasn't getting a wage. Uh, and, you know, my, my one day a week um, kind of doesn't really compare to, to what, it, what I would have been on if I'd stayed with the Children's Society and that kind of thing. But there are other people in the church who over the years have volunteered and have put time in without getting paid, without it being their job, without it being identified as being their role, and people get on and they do things. All these men had volunteered. The strength of David's army relied on people who would put their hands up and volunteer. Not only did they volunteer, but they came fully determined that the reason they were volunteering, what they were volunteering for, and what they were volunteering until, was the time that David would be put as king on the throne of Israel. And we move on a little bit. And then in 1 Chronicles 13, um, it starts like this. It says, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it's the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pastulands to come and join us. All these people have already come. And then David feels led by God to say, do you know what? Speak to everyone you know everyone you can get in touch with and tell them we want them to join us. That's part of our job as Christians, part of our job as, as the church is to, is to go out and both look for people who've had some kind of faith or hold some kind of faith who've maybe drifted away from joining together with the church and the mission of the church that God's called us all to and bring them in, but also to people who've never heard the message of God before, it's our job to tell people the good news of Jesus and to bring people into a place where they can get on with the mission of God that he's given us as a family, as a community of church. It says in, then in, in chapter 13, verse 4, the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. There was unity of purpose, there was unity of calling, and there was unity of thought. It seemed right to all the people. They gathered together, they knew what God wanted, so they agreed that this was the right thing to do, and they went out and did it. As a church, we need to do that.
Okay? You can't rely on me. You can't rely tonight on, on Andy. Um, you can't rely on like what Chris said last week to be the only thing that tells you what God wants you to do because there's so much in here that I don't know. There's so much in here that we all need to know in God's word. We need to be responsible ourselves for getting into God's word so that we understand when God calls us to do something or God's people call us to do something that it is the right thing to do. We need to know that. We're underdogs. At least in the eyes of the world, in the, in the eyes of the media. Okay. We don't stand a chance. They think we're going to shut our doors. I don't know what people think we do at church when we get inside here. People's views of what the church is. They see us as something irrelevant almost. But we've got a fight to fight. And we need to look like David did at using our strengths. We need to be the underdog that really, really steps up. Mark Twain, American author, is quoted as saying this. It's not the size of the dog in the fight that counts. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Okay? It's not the size of the dog in the fight that counts. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Now, I'm sure you've seen, like me, those comic situations where you get some tiny little terrier that thinks it's like a wolf and like goes chasing after like a dog that is 10 times its size. And because it has that, that, that strength in it and that belief in it, I'm sure you've also seen, like me, massive dogs turn and run away from tiny little yapping terriers. Right, that small dog has got a big lot of fight in it. The church worldwide, the church in the UK, the church in Netherton, the church here at PHCC. It might be a small dog, but are we going to show that we've got a big fight in us?